0: Hello everyone, welcome back to uh, I Think Therefore I Am, our FAU Medicine Podcast. We've been a little bit of a hiatus, but we're back, better than ever, we're here with my friends.
1: Hey guys, I'm Megan Mayo. Hey guys, I'm Michael
2: Mamone.
0: So first off, I thought I'd start you off with a quick joke. Why did the patient with critical limb ischemia have to cancel his wedding?
1: I don't know why.
0: He was getting cold feet. <laughs>
1: <laughs> oh, boy. <laughs> I want you to know
0: that I came up with that, okay? Good. Good. Very proud. Oh, that, good. that was
1: Gutman original.
0: So I thought we could talk today about one of my favorite series of articles, Things We Do For No Reason. So we'll start with uh, a quick article from Megan. So what you got for us today?
1: All right. So I'm going to talk about putting patients NPO after midnight and how we do it for everybody. Um, so interestingly, uh, this comes from a study in 1946. So a, mm-hmm. in obstetric patients, a guy named Mendelston published a study looking at 66. I, I never trusted
0: him, honestly.
1: I know. Yeah. I don't think we should have. We never should have. <laughs> 66 pregnant women um, and looked at these women who aspirated during delivery when they were under general anesthesia. Mm-hmm. Of these 66 patients, two of them had eaten a full meal within six to eight hours prior to general anesthesia and died. So we took that and basically by the 1960s um, started recommending that all surgical patients in the anesthesia literature were made to be NPO, which is nil per os, because we're trying to be fancy, um, within at least eight hours prior to surgery. More recently, a study from 2014 actually found that patients on average are fasting for about 13 and a half hours for solids and nine and a half hours for liquids. Um, and as we all know, this leads to a lot of patient dissatisfaction, complaints. It's one of the biggest things we deal with, right, when we're seeing our patients and they're saying, why can't I eat or drink anything? And honestly, we probably, you know, should be letting them at least drink more. So let's talk about why indiscriminate NPO after midnight orders may be inappropriate. So compared to the 1960s, now we have a lot more data. We can look at gastric emptying studies. We've shown that clear liquids empty out of the stomach in the average person within two hours. Mm -hmm. Um, Even a light meal, which can be defined as like toast and water, empties out within six hours, but a fatty meal can take eight hours. And then further studies of 2003, there was a Cochrane review. There was no difference in gastric volumes or in pH in patients who were forced to fast. Um, Additional studies between the 80s and 90s showed that the majority of aspiration events And even this, we're talking super rare. It's like 0.14% of all patients who have aspiration events post-surgery. But of those, the vast majority that occurred were in patients who had obstruction or ileus to start with. Hmm. So as of 1998, the American Society of Anesthesiologists adopted guidelines that allowed clear liquids up to two hours prior to anesthesia in patients who are deemed low aspiration risk. So honestly, this is the majority of our patients. Low aspiration
0: risk meaning... Exactly, elderly and without history of strokes, of that nature.
1: So the main issues are low-risk means you don't have any um, issues with motility, Mm -hmm. with gastric volumes. Um, There's no obstructions. That's your general low-risk patient. Um, And this is pregnancy actually Mm -hmm. counts you as high-risk. Not that we're dealing with pregnant patients Mm -hmm. anyway um, in general, but... So who, you know, who should be NPO for longer than, like you said, so it's, it's gastroparesis, trauma patients can actually be included in that, and sure. then pregnancy. Um, so basically, what should we be, be doing instead, instead of making everybody just NPO after midnight? So according to the ASA guidelines, healthy non-pregnant patients should fast for eight hours for heavy meals, okay? So that's like a fatty meal. Six hours for a light, non fatty meal, and then only two hours for clear liquids. And that's per the ASA guidelines. And then importantly, you should be taking your home PO meds regardless of your NPO status. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I, you know, what I think this comes down to is really improving the communication between the procedure scheduling and then your inpatient, your floor staff. Because if we can be allowing our patients to drink up to two hours before their procedure, you know, you really need to know what time the procedure is, first of all. Um, but it really is encouraged to actually give patients a a carbohydrate-rich drink, so like a Gatorade, aka Mm -hmm. Gatorade. We're saying fancy Mm -hmm. words for that, but um, prior to their procedure. And the most recent, I don't know if you guys have heard of kind of the ERAS, so it's improved recovery after surgery. It's the big surgery literature now. They actually recommend that you get a two hours before surgery as well as after surgery, you get uh, like a Gatorade or something that's carbohydrate rich because they've shown it has improved recovery after surgery. Um, So in summary, just make sure that, you know, we're trying to increase our our communication, figuring out exactly when procedures are gonna happen so that patients can at least have something to to drink. Um, You know, don't be feeding them a hamburger, but I think it's okay to give them a little bit of something to drink.
0: Skip the breakfast burger.
1: Yeah, unfortunately.
0: So I, I think this is a, a classic case of, um, you know, when there's a study, one of the things we're taught to look at is who was included in the study, and so this was an old study that included OB patients, and we extrapolated and applied that to all patients across the hospital. So it seems like a poor application of the inclusion criteria, and it, you know Pandora's box was open I will also say, uh, I, you know, even if there's evidence, I wouldn't unilaterally make that move, like what you're alluding to. We should know the OR schedule. Like For example, I had a patient this week who wasn't going to the OR till 8 p.m. or 7 p.m. or something for her hip. Known hip fracture, we knew when she was going, and so we actually got her a breakfast tray that morning. Because like, otherwise she'd be NPO for like 19 hours you know
1: yep. and when exactly. a patient
0: is an npo for 13 hours i i have never related more to a patient who's complaining <laughs> and upset yeah i get it yeah so you can definitely improve patient satisfaction uh and and well-being just with a small little meal even if it's not the filet mignon or the, the burger or whatever they want at least it's something
2: yeah and like coming from a, like the hospital standpoint you kind of feel powerless for your patient you want to advocate for them but you know, when it comes to anesthesia and surgery kind yeah. of running the show in that aspect, you feel like you can't do much. And your mm-hmm. patient's sitting there all day, then, they're, then they're, they're sit, their procedures canceled. they moved to the next day, then they start for 12 hours, and you lose right. that entire patient-physician this, this, this relationship.
0: Is one, this is one of these studies where ideally it's brought up to like hospital administration or anesthesia department to like yeah. come up with protocols across the board.
1: Yeah, I agree. Uh, I, I know there's not much we can personally yeah. do because the last thing you want is to have one of their procedures canceled because you let them eat or drink something. Right. Um, but the, I do the, think we need to relook at the, the way things and, are generally done. And then
0: the only other patient I would not include in that is, you know, like your baby troponin, chest pain. You know, this is, good, this is a great idea for like a planned procedure that you know what time it's going to be. Someone has chest pain, they might get a calf. Their cath is scheduled for tomorrow. I wouldn't feed them overnight just because, like, what if the, you know, what if their pain becomes worse and then you get to the cath? I wouldn't want to have any issues there. So that might be the one time I might also. Yeah,
1: I agree. This is more when we know what time they're going for their procedure.
0: I will also share with you that last month we had a patient who was pending, I don't even know what procedure, and somehow, some way, he got some, like, some, some snacks brought to him and he ate an apple and someone not an apple. Ha- an apple that's all he had he was just telling <laughs> me he ate an apple he ate healthy and someone canceled his planned procedure because he had an apple and i thought it was really funny that for this patient an apple a
2: day <laughs> it kept the doctor <laughs> away <laughs> wow. that's uh, awesome poor guy. And definitely need to reach out to gatorade and become the official sponsor of anesthesiology and surgery yeah <laughs> So that is a great opportunity definitely, for them. I
0: think we'll, we'll you know, I, we joke when our patients are NPO and whatnot, but we should see their, their, you know, their side of things. And I think this definitely will change at least my approach to things. So one other topic that I wanted to discuss, it's one that is near and dear to my heart. Uh, for those of you who have rounded with me, you know that uh, I do not like rounding in the dungeon, uh, aka the resident room over at Bethesda. I very much prefer walking around and when able to just present in front of the patients uh, and just have a conversation, um, hash it out right in front of the patient and go from there. Uh, So there was an article in Things We Do For No Reason about the different types of rounding styles. Bedside rounding, which is where you present in front of the patient, talk about their labs, their images, everything that's going on. Then there's walking rounds where you're kind of walking around the hospital floor, which most is kind of what we mostly do here. And you talk about it, then you go see the patient. And then there's card flipping, air quotes, or table rounding where you sit in the dungeon, everyone's on their computers, like paying attention to their thing. We kind of discuss patients. Then we go upstairs and we're like, who's that guy? Is he the one with the chest pain? And then we see them. Ooh, so, yeah. why is table rounds like the preferred, I'm sure. That's your preferred method. You don't have to say. It.
1: Well, I think as, yeah. it, as <laughs> an intern, yeah. it definitely was. Yes. But I think now as a senior, I actually like doing the, the floor rounds. Which, yeah, which I heat. think
2: I prefer walking over in front of the patient because right. the patient likes to interrupt a lot and it can ruin. Really and flow so, 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 yeah. why,
0: why did you prefer those methods? And I will try to make you a believer.
2: I think for table rounds, is this more efficient in, a, in mm-hmm. a sense where you just knock everything out, you get all the orders in, right. you look at all the labs more thoroughly as a team, and then walking, it's just the same
1: concept. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And to be honest, I mean, the intern is the one who has to write
2: right. every so little thing. As the end.
1: intern,
0: it's great to yeah. have all the data in front of you and yeah. be able to honestly write notes while the attending is blabbering about something. Mm-hmm. So I get it. Uh, so that's exactly what this article said, is perceived efficiency, of uh, uh, table rounding Um, and then the other thing that they mentioned reasons to table round is sometimes uh, if it's sensitive information or if you know maybe you're talking about tumors or HIV or something kind of uncomfortable It's kind of hard to know what to talk about in front of the patient
2: Um,
0: and the other thing that was mentioned was uh, maybe it's it's less private You, you feel maybe a little more nervous presenting in front of the patient
1: I've definitely so, had the experience where the neighboring patient is chiming in while yeah, you're exactly, trying to have a exactly. no, to. It. No, It's like, hey, it. have you guys yeah. considered
0: this in the differential? Lupus? Yeah. <laughs>
2: yeah. 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 <laughs>
0: it's like, sir, this doesn't involve you. So I, I hear that. So according to this paper, at least, why should you do bedside rounds? So they actually survey patients and ask them about their personal experience with the physicians and the, the provider team talking in front of them. And they mentioned that 87% of patients were unbothered by the discussions that were done in front of them. And um, they don't give percentages, but in general, there was increased um, patient satisfaction, increased uh, amount of uh, clarity from the provider team to the patient. Um, And then patients also noticed uh, that they spent twice as much time with providers when bedside rounds were utilized. and then, in terms of the other drawbacks, efficiency and, and workflow and all that, uh, there were some studies mentioned in this article that said uh, timing across the different rounding styles were the same. One study did say timing, bedside rounds, takes about 20% longer, but they did mention that by incorporating a nurse and a pharmacist and like a whole, you know, multifaceted team, you save efficiency later. Mm-hmm. It was one thing. So, uh, and then the last thing that they mentioned as a Pro was a little more supervision. Uh, it, it allows for more teaching and feedback. If the faculty member sees you talking to the patient more, and it it'll allows for more teaching and feedback. Um, so what should we do with this information? I will tell you anecdotally, I really enjoy rounding at the bedside. I think my take home from it is kind of know your audience. Um, we should try to generally round at the bedside. However, if it's delivering bad news, we should probably talk about it in the hallway about what our approach is gonna be. If it's a patient who has, uh, you, you already know you've met this patient before and you've come across these that you know it's gonna be a time bomb where it's gonna be 20 minutes and it's gonna devolve into a lot of like, my dinner Jenny was Kathy. late, a lot of stuff, right? Okay, mm-hmm. maybe not bedside around there. Uh, and um, you know, even stuff like uh, just discussing the labs and stuff, I find, I think that they really enjoy seeing so many heads together talking about and considering and how do we approach this problem. Like they don't know all that behind the scenes work that's done. So if you bring that show to them, they feel like they're like, okay, someone really heard me and and thought about my my symptoms. So my take home is try to do bedside rounds as much as possible. And for me personally, my goal is to round with you guys in two hours or less. So I try to employ some kind of hybrid model where uh, we'll re- bedside around when we can, walk around on a bunch, and then honestly, a patient who this happens, you know, waiting for a sniff for four days. I don't see any utility to a group of five of us. If that's 10 minutes times five people, it's 50 minutes of work time. So in that patient, I go by myself, and I generally will let the residents um, kind of Go and get food, or work under orders, or whatever else is going on that day. So I think it's an important, you know, to me it's a useful article. It kind of proves this concept. Um, I will also share that when I was a medical student, we had this one attending shout out Dr. Southwick. Uh, we had him for two weeks. The first week he led us around how we wanted to, and the second week he said, "I'm going to make you bedside round," and at the end of the two weeks, he revealed to us that he had been timing us every day, and uh-huh. he kept track of the census, and he figured huh. out that with table rounds between talking and then seeing the patient we spent like 14 minutes per patient and with bedside rounds we spent 11. Wow So it's pretty it? cool yeah so he yeah. like it was proof of concept wow. to me yeah. um so and and he had a if I remember correctly he had a, a prosthetic leg so if he can walk around <laughs> and see all these patients at the bedside I think I can too yeah. so I I bring up this article because you know you guys are going to be Attendings one day. Some of you will be faculty with residents, with students. It's good to have an efficient model, and idea of how you want to approach your rounds and seeing the patients and getting your work done. So,
2: yeah. One thing I really like to say is, especially with bedside rounding, is explain to the patient that you're going to be using medical jargon, and mm-hmm. then we'll explain it in simpler terms once we're done, and that will prevent a lot of interruptions from the patient because they sure. always ask, "What's that mean? What is that?" Oh yeah. God, she'll be worried. So I think that's explaining yourself that we're going to use a lot of medical talk, but then we'll explain it in mm-hmm. simpler terms. Yeah. I I
0: always use my go-to line. I, I tell the patient, "We're going to talk shop," and I'll translate after.
2: Yeah.
0: And but it's also good because sometimes the, you know they hear what you're saying. They're like, oh, "I I never had chest pain, or I never had dyspnea," so they can actually help with some details too.
1: I also think it helps them visualize us as a team because a lot of times they see one of us come in at once, and they're like, "Oh, who are you? Are you mm-hmm. guys, what are you? Why yeah. are there so many of you?" And I think just seeing us all together really puts together that it's the team of us right. who are all working. To get you better or whatever
0: so. i already told this story four
1: times today yep <laughs> poor med student who wakes them up at five and then exactly. just sequence after that yeah <laughs>
2: yeah all right guys okay thanks everybody